0: Well, if you'll turn this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, I'm sorry I didn't look up to see what page number that's on, on the Bibles in the rows, Uh, but there are Bibles in the rows that you can use, and uh, those are, uh, again, if you don't have a copy of your own, uh, feel free to take that home with you. But John, chapter 17, just the first three verses this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray as we come before his word. Lord, we do ask that this morning that you would guide and direct, that you would open ears and eyes and soften hearts to receive this message, to receive your words, to hear even as we introduce a a new series this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be at work. Do so for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. These are the first words in A.W. Tozer's classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, and I would say I tend to agree with him. Our view of God, our understanding of, of God is crucial to determining everything, how we live in this world, how we will, we will respond to, to life's situations, how we will worship, how we will approach things like politics and vocation, and so much more. Tozer goes on to write this. He says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. This morning, we begin a series that's a little different than normal, but I think it's substantial and needed for us. Typically, we follow a pattern. We follow a pattern of starting and finishing a particular book of the Bible, and I believe that that manner of preaching should be the steady diet of the church. I believe that for several reasons. I I believe it shows a submission to the text, that we believe all of Scripture is inspired by God. You don't skip hard passages. You don't skip things that might be difficult to talk about at times, and and that it's all applicable. It's inspired by God. It also works the church through the whole counsel of God, and the text for each Sunday does not fall simply on the, the whims or the desires of a preacher, but on what's actually next in the book. It also displays how we are, in general, to interact with the Word of God, because if you go about with a pick-and-choose approach, it's not really the most helpful or um, healthy way of approaching Scripture. So this pattern teaches God's people how to study the Word of God rightly and in context. So if that's the case, why am I doing what I'm doing now? Why am I doing a more topical series? Well, first thing that I want to put us at ease at is that just because it's topical does not mean it won't be expositional, meaning that it won't let the the text guide. The text will still control the message, but the text will, will not necessarily be sequential in a book. They'll be more systematic in approach based on the subject rather than in that sequential manner in a book. Second, sometimes there are needs within the church that call for addressing them in a topical manner. This is not a whim of mine. I will say that. This is not a whim of mine. Honestly, I find doing topical series is much more difficult. I, I cannot just pick a text that I think will fit the topic and, and go with it. And, you know, the text has to control the message. I, I, I try, I'll tr- promise you now, I, I will endeavor never to shoehorn a text to fit a topic. It's dangerous. It happens too much in the church, and it's not the way to approach Scripture. So it actually creates more work for me, because there have been times when I've picked a text, I've studied it, and I go, that really has nothing to do with what I thought it had to do with, and I have to start over. And it creates more work. It's good work, and it's work that I'm looking forward to, um, and I believe that it will be work that's of great profit to the church. So consider this very first words of Scripture. In the beginning, God. God is the foundation. God is from the beginning. God was before all else. God has no beginning and no end. And there really is so much more that could be said in regard to these words. And I'm sure as we move into this series, we will talk more and more about it. So just to lay out that everything begins with God. And that's why we're doing this series, Knowing God, growing in doctrine, growing in our understanding and in our devotion. We're in doctrine and devotion. J.I. Packer in his classic work called Knowing God wrote this, the world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. So needless to say, I don't want that for any of us. I want us to live our lives to the full and have our souls safe and secure in the knowledge of God. We need to know about God clearly and truthfully. So, this morning, I simply want to introduce the series and do so by looking at two related ideas knowing God and responding to God. Two things, knowing God and responding to God. And prayerfully, this will whet our appetites and give us a taste as to why this actually makes such a difference in our life, our view of God, and our understanding of who He is. So, the first truth that we as human beings must acknowledge is this there is a God. There is a God. I just read from Genesis 1-1, but we can actually know of God's existence apart from Scripture. We can know that there is a God through the works of God. Now, I'm going to read Scripture to explain that a little bit, but Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, tells us For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we all are without excuse. Here's the takeaway. Simply from nature, it is clear that there is a God. There is a creator. Now, people may, and they do, suppress that knowledge, but I think it's actually undeniable. The intricacies of creation are beyond the possibility of chance. So listen, what I am saying is that it is absolutely reasonable and clear that there is something bigger than us. There is a design in our creation. There is a creator who designed it all. Yet, though we can know there is a God, just this idea of God, there is a God that exists, we need more information. The the second question of of the Westminster Larger Catechism reads this. How does it appear that there is a God? The answer is, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. We just talked about that. And then it goes on, but... But his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. So we need the work of God's spirit, and uh, the the work of God's spirit with and through his word to show us more about who is this creator, God, his attributes and characteristics, his standards and way of working, and, and with that, how he works for us on our behalf to actually be more than just our creator but to be our Savior as well. So then when we acknowledge that there is a God, the next logical step, okay, there's a God, is how are we going to respond to Him? How will we respond to Him? God is is not something that you stuff away in the corner or or shove in the closet and just ignore and go, you know what, I I don't have to think about that. He he has no impact on my life. We, We cannot do that as to God. You cannot ignore Him. And so if we take out one option of response, and that's, just simply denying his existence, then there are a few ways in which we can respond to him. And each of these responses actually affect how we live. Now, at this point, I'm very grateful and I recommend to you a book by Paul Tripp. It's a book called Do You Believe? Twelve Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. And in the book, Tripp basically summarizes or rewords, puts in his own words, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, in regard to a certain doctrine, maybe the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, or Scripture, and then he he summarizes it that way, and then he, to some degree, works out how these doctrines matter, how these doctrines are actually practical in our everyday life. And I've relied on his work. I, I've pulled from it, adjusted it at times, and honestly, it's just a helpful work that I would I, I would be glad if you if you picked up and started working through. So then, what are the ways that people respond to God? Well, one can just believe in an idea of God. You know, they're they're basically fine with there being a God, but there is very little desire to know that God. And what that means is that um, this belief makes little to no difference in how one lives. This this person is not antagonistic to God. Um, They don't have a beef with God, anything like that, but there's nothing personal there. There's no relationship. There's just spiritual, you know, Whatever it might be, it's, it's, and, and so this idea, at least how it works itself out, is, is this idea is very distant, it's unloving, uninvolved, impersonal, impotent, uncaring. It's a very generic idea of God, just that there's something out there. Now, um, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways just to make it clear This conception of God does not fit the biblical portrait. It doesn't fit the portrait that Scripture lays out for us. These people, again, would consider themselves spiritual, perhaps identify even with a religious affiliation, a a religious tradition, but it has little influence on their lives. Now, another way to respond is to believe in God, but not merely this concept or this idea of God, but rather a whole system of belief but yet it's still not a biblical system of belief. So this would include other world religions, and and these would be the more committed followers uh, or adherents of these theistic religions, things like Islam, Hinduism, um, at least parts of Hinduism, Judaism, Mormonism, Baha'i, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, and some others. These folks believe in God, or gods as the case may be, but their belief, as I said, is not biblical. Their claims to truth contradict what Scripture claims. And as one who believes the Scriptures to be true, then my conclusion must be that these folks have false or wrong beliefs about God. Now, that's not a disrespectful or an arrogant statement. I know some people in our world would say automatically if I disagree with somebody else, I'm being disrespectful. But actually what I'm doing is I'm respecting them and taking what they claim about God to actually be something that they claim, that they hold sincerely, and I'm respecting what I believe and what Scripture says. So it's not disrespectful. It's actually taking both sets of beliefs fully. When two things say opposite things, you cannot say, well, they're both true. Okay? Then you, you live with a lot of other problems if you can do that in life. If you can say A and not A, I don't want to ride in a car with you because you might say red light is green light. I I don't know. But thankfully, the world doesn't live with A and not A all the time. So we, we can't do that. So then there's another group who truly believe in the God of the Bible and since they do, they've responded to Him appropriately. They have repented of their sin and rebellion. They believe in the God revealed in Scripture. They worship. They study God's Word in order to know Him better. They participate in the life of the church. And let me just say, that's a good place to be. That is a good place to be. But lately, at least that it's, it's more uh, maybe popular, there's a tweak to this group that's significant and dangerous. That is, those who say they believe in the Christian God, but yet they adapt that God to their own personal beliefs. They let their own personal morals and ideas and and thoughts of who God ought to be dictate what Scripture says. They mold God in their image, the image of their morality. They end up actually standing in authority over this rather than in submission under it. They don't stand in humility, they actually stand in pride, even though they quite often pose themselves as uncertain and humble because they, don't, they, they, they can't know for sure, but they're actually standing over the Scripture. And it's a very dangerous and self-centered approach to God. And I will say that, just so you know, we probably all have a smidgen of that or more in our own hearts where we don't like something in Scripture and we decide we'll either ignore it or just say, I don't believe that. And that's a dangerous start. That's the start of a snowball down a mountain that's going to become a whole lot bigger than a snowball. But then there's one more category that Tripp sets forth, and he lays this out really well. And it, it likely includes everyone in the category of those who believe in the God of the Bible and seek to respond to Him appropriately. Tripp writes this, There's nothing more important, more central, more heart-engaging, and more formative than my belief in and my relationship with my Savior and Lord. It is not only the center of my worldview, but He is the source of all my hope in this life and in the life to come. I love Him with all my heart, and everything I do is shaped by the worship of Him, but not always. But, not always. That's every one of us, honestly. It's every one of us. And Tripp labels this, and I've, I've done so actually for years. I love that he called it this. It's practical atheism. Not atheism as in a, a, a wide-ranging belief system... But this is when we as believers, we do believe, but we live and act at certain times as if God really doesn't exist. He figures not a whit into our decision-making in, in the day-to-day. We can all too easily go through a day without, with, with, with nary a thought about God. We get to the end of the day, and like, did we ever pray? Did I even think about God once this day? Or did I just go through the motions? And this is probably all of us. And Tripp contends that this is not a matter of knowledge, a matter of the mind, but at the root of it, it's a matter of the heart. He quotes a verse from one of my favorite hymns, one that we're going to sing here once the message is done. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Psalm 86, 11, part of a text from a few weeks ago. Teach me Your way, O Lord, that I may walk in Your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Old NIV, I think, actually words that as, give me an undivided heart. We have hearts that are pulled in many directions. And so when when Tripp says this is not a matter of the mind but of the heart, I I mostly agree with him. Okay? Okay? But there's also an aspect where knowledge really matters. Okay, I think he's saying that of those who know God, who have studied, things like that. But the reality is, is we all have a whole lot more to know of God. And I truly believe that knowledge can feed the heart. The right kind of knowledge does not have to puff up. It can actually feed the heart and help in the pursuit of Him. We cannot rightly love what we do not rightly know. You can't. You cannot rightly love what you do not rightly know. And I believe the church in general is lacking in its knowledge of God. You know, there's no more Christian bookstores really, but if you went to the bestsellers at a Christian bookstore, at the Christian section of Barnes and Noble, don't buy a single one of them. They're horrible. Okay? And that's without having gone in a Christian bookstore in a while or in Barnes & Noble. But in general, they have no real idea of who the God, the God of the Bible is. And that's sad. It's, it's, it's frustrating because that's what so many people are feeding off of. That's why I'm doing this series. I know I personally need to grow and be refreshed in my knowledge of God, who God is consistently and I'm going to say a blanket statement, so do all of you. So do all of you. So we, we must have the basic knowledge of God to grow, and if we want to continue to grow, uh, you know, we, we seek to, to grow in that knowledge of Him. But I will agree with Tripp then, too, that it is still a heart issue. It's, it's a both and. It is a hard issue. There is no doubt to that. You, you see, because much of the reason why we don't give thought to or acknowledge God throughout our day or, or really it, it many times is because we're proud and we're self-centered and we're self-righteous. Acknowledging God and His work and His involvement, His transcendence, His power, His holiness, who He is, actually exposes us. Coming into the light of God reveals the darkness in our own hearts. Just listen to what Tripp wrote. I don't think it's up there. The holiness of God exposes how unholy we are. The almighty power of God shines a light on our weaknesses. The sovereignty of God shows how little control we actually have. The omniscience, so God knowing all things, of God causes us to face the limits of our knowledge and understanding. The love of God exposes us how unloving we can be. The faithfulness of God confronts our wandering hearts. The grace of God reveals how critical and unforgiving we often are. The patience of God confronts our irritability and impatience. The righteousness of God exposes our sin. And we could go on and on and on through His attributes. And just so you know, we're going to (laughs) in this series. We're going to talk about the practical. Knowing the perfections of God uncovers our imperfections and our sin tendencies and our proud hearts don't like that. But here's the kicker. If we knew and believed the God of the Bible, God as He presents Himself in Scripture, those things actually wouldn't keep us away. They would really draw us to Him. They would. That's not what would say, oh, stay away. He's saying, come to me in that. Because responding rightly actually turns the face of God towards His children. Listen to Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is this place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So we have the Lord establishing in that first verse of Isaiah 66, everything's mine. What can you do for me? You know, we could go to other places. And say, if I were hung- I wouldn't tell you if I were hungry. The cattle, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own everything. I've made everything. I hold the the, the world and the universe together by the word of my power. What? What? And then he comes and says this, but, and I love that conjunction in Scripture, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So if we actually knew the God of the Bible well, when His righteousness exposes our sin, when His grace exposes our impatience, it wouldn't make us back away from Him. It would actually push us to our knees in prayer and contrition and find His presence. That's the beauty of understanding and knowing God better, is it actually leads us into a place where we find rest and hope and refuge. See, God looks to the humble humility and contrition. It's actually for our good. So we need to see God as He is and respond to Him rightly. And listen, the reason I'm doing that is we cannot do that if we don't know Him. Doctrine matters. We cannot do this without gaining an understanding of who He is. Charles Spurgeon wrote this years ago. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, Finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought, we were born only yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. So here's what I want to call us to. Let us as a people think on God. Let us contemplate the divine. Let us gain the knowledge of God. But but listen, I listed the, the, the multiple ways to respond to God. The God we think on must be the true God. We have to think biblically. This must be in line with truth, and that means that it's a very specific knowledge that is required. Back to John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is Jesus praying. And what he says is of eternal significance for us. So I want to focus on verse 3. And this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So do you see what John equates with eternal life? It's knowing God. This is eternal life. That they know you. It's the knowledge of the only true God. Eternal life cannot be anything less than the knowledge of the only true God. It is more, but it cannot be anything less than that. Because it is certainly more than mere knowledge. When we hear knowing God, we think of, oh, yeah, I know Joe, or I know Bob, or whatever. That's not the kind of knowledge we're talking about. In Scripture, to know is more than a a cognitive understanding or just a simple recognition. It's actually living in fellowship with God. There is an intimacy there. There is affection and commitment. And so this fellowship, this kind of knowing, comes as one repents and believes in Jesus. This is knowledge of the only true God. It is turning to Him from all our other notions of Him, our other means of self-salvation, our other gods and it's a specific turning. It's a turning to Jesus. Knowledge of God is knowledge of Jesus. Those cannot be separated, and it is personal. And so, in that, there is fellowship and trust and rest. This is entering into relationship, and it is found in none other than Christ. He's the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5, and he's the only way to know the true and only God. Every other means is false. You may sincerely believe something to be true, but if it's false, it's not true. You may sincerely believe that a beaker of cyanuric acid is water, but I dare say if you drink that, you're in trouble. So sincerity does not determine truth. So don't judge people by their sincerity. We have to look and see, what do we believe? John Calvin wrote of this idea of the true and only. He says, first, faith must distinguish God from the vain inventions of men. And embracing him with firm conviction must never change or hesitate. And secondly, believing that there is nothing defective or imperfect in God, faith must be satisfied with him alone. I love what he wrote. Because we must know who God is. Who he has revealed himself to be not our inventions of him, not our conceptions, not our ideas, not what society says, not what postmodern morality or this or that, not what any of those say, but how he has revealed himself. He has been gracious enough to give us 66 books inside one amazing book that is his revelation, his disclosure of himself to us. And it's a book that's that on every page in so many ways says, Jesus, this is the way to know the true God. Folks, we can't go by our inventions. We have to go by what He says, and we are to be satisfied in Him alone. And I believe fully that the more we know God, the more we will actually rest in Him. In times of difficulty, in the good times too, in times of pain, and times of stress, when we have to help one another out, whatever it may be, the more we know of him, the more we will rest in him. We will take refuge. We will understand. We, we went through the Psalms all summer. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in the king who reigns. Let us know that king and take refuge in him. And then we will live what um, the church has said for, for, for really a long time, we'll live quorum Deo. We'll live in the presence of God, before the face of God daily. That's my hope and my desire and my prayer, that as we work through this series, that we would know God more and more as He is, and the clarity and wonder and the beauty that we see And that we would be people who consciously live in his presence more and more. And that because of that we would live lives of joy, of rest, of boldness in sharing our faith, of peace, of endurance, and of strength. Because we know our God so well. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for condescending and revealing yourself to us. Lord, for communicating to us in Scripture, but then showing us yourself so fully in Christ. May we long to know you. May we long to delight in you, to to study you, to contemplate the beauty of the divine. God, draw us near unto you. Bind our wandering hearts to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.